previously on Storyological. <laughs> you there! Where's my nice new? Where my nice new journal? My nice and new. And we end up carrying around these bags with feet in them, right? I was so obsessed with. I've been thinking about. I started reading The Lighthouse, which is my first my first experience with Virginia Woolf, and I'm kind of loving it. Although I do feel a bit short of breath. It's written in this incredibly kind of horrid flow. To the, play. the old restless moodiness had again filled his breast. And my accent. I mean, it is a restless moody beast, this accent, this <laughs> afternoon. It's all over the fucking map. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. All right, so my pick this week, The Debutante by Leonora Carrington. 1939, the year of this publication. It is in the anthology, What Did Miss Darrington See? An anthology of feminist supernatural fiction. Edited by Jessica Amanda Salmonson, with an introduction by Rosemary Jackson. Emma introduced this book to me, and we thought, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's dig into it. So, first thing, Leonora Carrington, if you don't know, is a painter and writer associated with the Surrealist movement. She spent time in England, France, Spain, and Mexico. And for whatever reason, Emma and I are having a surrealist moment right now, which in most every day of the week, we discover something new about surrealists. We saw in the Art Assignment, which is a YouTube channel. Yeah, they uh, had an exploration of what surrealism was. Yeah, the is. case for surrealism. Uh-huh. They made a good case. I was into it. They, yeah, they did make a good case. And then when we were visiting your mum, saw a documentary by with bbc <laughs> yeah we saw a bbc documentary where there was um a psychotherapist who was exploring the roots of surrealism and yeah i mean they they got themselves a manifesto they the did. surrealist did and I, what I <laughs> that was all the rage back in the day the marxist manifest- manifesto surrealist manifesto? manifesto i think it's pretty much hitler killed it Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, she was talking about the fact that the beginning of the surrealist movement is not, was not kind of Dali and the artwork, the visual artwork that we know it for today, but was actually poets. Right. And And pop culture folks, commercials took it over. Image, image, image. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the poets were trying to, trying to develop ways to connect deeply with that unconscious. They were trying to channel automatic writing. They were trying to take themselves then and their conscious minds out of the creative process. Yeah. So speaking of which, I went to the Tate Modern to see an exhibition called The Radical Eye, which is a collection of Elton John photographs. And while there, I was like, oh, I, I, I get you. I get you, Elton. You've collected a lot of modernist photographs. Oh, wow. A lot of these are surrealist photographs. Look, there's all those people in man I have been hearing about. And then I come home and pick up Miss Darrington to see what story am I going to pick for him. And lo and behold, I see this woman's name, who I saw pictures of at the exhibition. At this point, I'm like, well, my my conscious brain's got no hope right now. Unconscious brain has clearly told me to pick this story. So I basically picked it before I read it. It turns out it's pretty weird. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) So also pretty awesome. Here's the first paragraph of The Debutante by Leonora Carrington. When I was a debutante... I often went to the zoological garden. I went so often that I was better acquainted with animals than with the young girls of my age. It was to escape from the world that I found myself each day at the zoo. The beast I knew best was a young hyena. She knew me too. She was extremely intelligent. I taught her French. 
and in return she taught me her language. We spent many pleasant hours in this way. Um, yeah. So, I mean, let's not even talk about that yet. That's just, that's just the story. From there, the debutante has her ball coming up, and she doesn't really like it. She doesn't want to go. And the hyena, great as hyenas, she calls the debutante on her shit. You're like, oh, you're complaining about your ball and you got to eat all this food and drink. I, I literally am in a zoo. I am <laughs> trapped in a cage. cage. Uh, and the debutante's like, well, you know, I mean, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you take my place? It's logical. Yeah. Yeah. And then logically they realize, I mean, we can dress this hyena up, but ultimately face of a hyena. Right. I Not mean, we can put the gloves on the hands, yeah. on the paws. And the shoes, the high heels. Yeah. yeah. Put a dress on. Stockings cover a multitude of sins. Totally. Um, so they're stuck for a moment until they realize, oh, I'm, we just take the face of the maid. <laughs> um, it's fantastic. And that's what they do. And our debutante, totally cool, sits in a window, reads Gulliver's Travels, total hipster chick, lover. Uh, and then there's this scream because it turns out the people at the ball did not like the way the hyena smelled. And we don't really get that, but we get it implicitly because we hear the hyena is like, oh, you don't like the way I smell? Let me eat my own face off <laughs> and then jump out the window. It's like, screw you guys. <laughs> I'm gone. I'm out the door. I really wish I'd been at that ball. Um, so that's what this story is about. Yeah. The fulcrum of this story, the pivot point, the moment around which the whole thing... Uh, fulcrates. Fulcrates, correct. Is the the murder and eating of this maid by the hyena. It's a high point. <laughs> it is high <laughs> slash low point. I mean, depending on your perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you're the maid, definitely a low point. Yeah, but she doesn't exist. I mean, she's low class. So so what happens is they the the hyena says, "Oh, do you do you have a maid?" "Yes, I do have a maid." "No problem then. What we will do is just kill her and I'll eat the rest of the body, um but I'll eat very carefully around the face so that I can use it as a disguise." And for some reason the debutante says, "Yes." But the the moment that was the most kind of viscerally upsetting for this was so, so the debutante agrees to this process, but she cannot watch the hyena do it. She turns away. She she says it would be too uncomfortable to watch, which is kind of obvious. A, B, represents the idea of the role of somebody who is has a coming out ball in that level of society, right? It is their job to just kind of accept what the men around them and society tells them to do, and to look away if they don't agree. And then thirdly, what I love is the understated language that she uses and how the language of euphemism that, oh, it would be uncomfortable, not shit, no, I don't want to watch you eat a human body. It would be uncomfortable is kind of, to me, representative of the way people use euphemism to allow horror into their lives. Right. So surrealism, mm -hmm. um, that whole big thing. Uh, one way of understanding it is World War One, and, oh, fuck, this didn't work. Just the whole thing didn't work. Rationalism, enlightenment, mm -hmm. this whole idea of civilization. We fucked it. 
No, 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 not that we fucked it. It just was never real. Oh, in fact, there's okay. this, this classic We've French movie, I believe, called, um, called in French, presumably, but I'm not going to say it in French, uh, called The Grand Illusion, which is just a story about war. But the, the implicit, the undercurrent is this whole idea of a civilized war, the idea that there was a time when a certain group fought wars in a civilized way, or the, uh, this whole idea uh, is an illusion. And that's that's something that this realist manifesto and some of the practitioners buy into this idea that it's actually all a euphemism that mm. all of civilization, all of this dress we put on things, is horror. And if we can access the subconscious, if we can access the animal that's inside us. That's great. And in fact, I, I love bestiality. Like you know, that the coupling of human and non-human, not necessarily in a sexy way. Though, you know, Beauty and the Beast, Dracula, it's good stuff. Um, but in a metaphorical way, I loved how that worked in the story. Like what you were saying, the, the debutante ball, the whole civilized function is the setting of the story. But the story sublimates all of that. Mm -hmm. So rather than the ball being the euphemism, being the thing that sublimates the animal act of reproduction and sex, you know, that has gotten papered over by society. In this story, it's the ball that's sublimated because that's the actual horror. Right. And the the human-animal relationship where the animal is murdering a maid and eating their face that's off. That's the sweet reality. That is, yeah, that is just the conscious, that's the, the surface level. Uh, it's adorable. This story was so true to me in a number of different ways. The, the truth of the absurdity, right? And the absurdity in the kind of philosophical... Camus sense of um, people dying for no good reason all the time at the whim of others and in the nastiest kind of ways, right? The fact that they ring for the maid who then comes to see what they want and what they want is to kill her. And that kind of pointlessness of existence, if that can happen to us at any moment, felt so, so right and true. But, but then they have or she gets in there the the truth of the fantastical as well and what you were talking about the beast inside and the the horror of reality so it's got these two truths uh, well truth working on two different but complementary levels which i thought was incredibly um powerful yeah there's this great line where the mom comes upset with her daughter for having set a hyena upon them and she says referring to the hyena that thing that was in your place you can see inside the dream this other idea of if the daughter had been down there pretending to be something she wasn't, wearing the face of someone that she didn't feel like she was, you know, in a, in a sense being that thing in her place, whereas she herself was sublimated, was, was cast aside, was repressed. You mentioned whimsy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, they get this idea that whimsy is precious or cute, but there's no reason nor should there be a reason that whimsy should not be violent. Violent whimsy is one of my favorite whimsies. It's great. All whimsy is, it just means that you, you favor following your own internal logic to the point of absurdity to other people. And that's something I adored in this story is the, the violent whimsy. This, this thing that I associate with surrealism and certain kind of absurd works that I love, which is that they are incredibly logical about their nonsense mm -hmm. so like in that exchange about the maid's face this is what they say the greatest difficulty was to find a disguise for the hyena's face for hours and hours we sought an answer she rejected all of my proposals at last she said 
I think I know a solution. You have a maid? Yes, I said. Well, that's it. You will ring for the maid, and when she enters, we will throw ourselves upon her and remove her face. I will wear her face this evening in place of my own. That's not practical, I said to her. She will probably die when she has no more face. Someone will surely find the corpse, and we will go to prison. I am hungry enough to eat her, replied the hyena. And the bones? Those too, she said. Then it's settled? Well, only if you agree to kill her before removing her face. Yeah, I mean, uh, it would be, be reasonable it would be this, too right? uncomfortable otherwise. Yeah, and it, and it is reasonable. It is if you're working in the absurd, if you're working in the in the weird, a very powerful way to do it is to make sure you, that there's this there's a, a logical progression to a conclusion that is surprising and inevitable and horrible. Mm-hmm. Civilization is a series of choices that are more or less logical seeming at the time, but, but chained together place. take us to to horrible horrible places. Yeah. And we end up carrying around these bags with feet in them. Like, yeah, right. I was yeah. so yeah. obsessed with. I've been thinking about yeah, this. the hyena couldn't finish their uh, mead dinner. No, so so the the debutante takes these feet and puts them in a bag, and I'm like, what is she doing? What's going to do with those bags? Well, is she going to carry it around with her, like her guilt for fate? That's you know, the beauty the, of it, right? Horror the her whole life. It's like it just became so incredibly weighty and symbolic and horrible and wonderful all at once and i was imagining these kind of like one toe poking out of the top of the bag i spent a lot of time thinking about the design of a bag and what kind of a size a bag needs to be to hold two feet and do they take the shoes or do they leave the shoes on i don't know this is one of the knocks against surrealism it's just a bunch of images that people read their own thoughts into and ultimately the artist hasn't done anything I know, but that's what I'm loving because it's just, it's it's been food for food for well, many many hours yeah. on public transport this week because well, I consider the possibilities. It, like it, like most knocks, it is a knock against the form that the knocker has created in their head to stand mm-hmm. in for the actual form. Mm-hmm. Um, the story has a definite point of view. It has a narrative structure. It has all of the skill and craft you need to tell a good story. It's just the logic it follows, the rationale it follows is one that people would find irrational. And that's what I, I, I adore in it because I like the way surrealism and other fantastic arts, it's not that they remove cause and effect. They just remove the, the kind of civilized idea that cause and effect come from a rational they remove the simplifying veil that civilization tries to put over cause and effect, right? We like to think it's, you know, one plus one equals two, whereas in fact it's, you know, 384,000 different events coming together all to, to make this one thing happen. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like cause and effect and rationality. They're so bourgeois. I mean, didn't we learn anything from World War I? That, that chain of thought doesn't get us anywhere. So my pick... From Miss Darrington, um, this amazing science fiction feminist uh, anthology that we have been talking about this week is An Unborn Visitant by Vita Sackville-West. It was published in 1932. Did you read about Vita Sackville-West? I sure did. Yeah. Thank you for My sister is reading Orlando right now by Virginia Woolf. Who, and it turns out that Vita Sackville-West is the model for the bigendered hero of that novel. Um, yeah, and she had a... A relationship with Virginia Woolf and was part of the Bloomsbury set. Um, and on her... Had a heck of a name. What? She did have a heck of a name. She is apparently one of those people who... People who aren't me have read more about her 
or um, more of her non-fiction than they have of her fiction because the, her letters with Virginia Woolf. I've just started reading The Lighthouse, which is my first my first experience with Virginia Woolf, and I'm kind of loving it, although I do feel a bit short of breath. It's written in this incredibly kind of torrid flow. It was like Joyce and Woolf, man, they were letting it fly. <laughs> and Rita Sackville-West has a very different style, but I love... Um, how strong and direct and opinionated it is as well. It is so unapologetic. She's just like, before we get into that, brief pricey of the story. It's the story of Elsa Branksome, a superlatively ordinary woman who snares the most eligible bachelor around. She is pondering his marriage proposal one night while getting ready for bed when all of a sudden, bum, 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 her grown-up daughter appears like a ghost from the future. And that is what most of the story centers on is their discussion across the years of of life and who this daughter is and clearly this this daughter is from Vita Sackville West's current times she represents the the kind of post flapper mm. modern woman who all of whom have their hair cropped and have names like Tommy and Benny yeah. and she's a total franny yeah total franny yeah i love her love her to death Heck of a gal. And Elsa is this incredibly proper Edwardian woman who is really struggling to connect with with this woman who appears to her. (laughs) Total (laughs) bore. Never done anything wrong in her life. Um, But despite these differences, it's a story that left me feeling incredibly hopeful for relationships in general, but also mother-daughter relationships. And... Like, I really recognized that struggle that they had to connect from their different perspectives. But at the end of the story, you feel like, actually, you know, they're going to make it through. They're going to find a way to see the world from each other's viewpoints and not and not isolate themselves. Yeah, they had a, a gloriously warm and prickly relationship. And I love both its, its particularness how much of a person Elsa is, how much of a person Daphne, her daughter, is, and how, in the great trick of the fantastic, the fact that Daphne is a ghost from her future, that mother-daughter relationship also becomes about a relationship between generations, about the relationship between time, between past and present. And I adored how they began in a place where at first Elsa was just like, I'm bewildered, I don't know what's going on, and then I have an unreasoning hatred of this person. They Mm -hmm. seem to be the most impudent, wrong-headed human that has ever existed, and then, I don't know why, I kind of like this girl. She's cool. And then moves to a more kind of affectionate place where you can almost feel like, sometimes, you know, for better or worse, people talk the magic, talk about the magic of motherhood, which is probably more or less just the magic of having a horribly painful process rip apart your body and then there's another human that disagrees with you a lot that gives you a chance to grow um and there's a there's a moment where daphne is speaking from her time about freud and about analysis and here comes you know elsa who presumably has not really ever said much of anything against anyone and she's listening to her daughter and she says to daphne my dear child you're much too analytical and then daphne agrees but she's like you know we just got this passion for honesty for knowing ourselves and elsa who has not at all been poetic at, all, at any point in the story, suddenly comes out with a line like, you have forgotten the charm of mystery. <laughs> that moment felt like a growth in her that only occurred because she was seeing herself from someone else's perspective. It, it is, in fact, a thing that can occur with anyone, any two people, but with a parent and a child, 
there is a sense of that, that past being a foreign country, that the future is a foreign country, that your kid lives in a different time space than you do. They live in a different dimension. As Daphne says, I live in the fourth dimension. But, but of course, so do you, mom. You just don't even know it. You just don't even know it. I found that exchange more disturbing than um, than that reading, partly because the the phrase, oh, you're much too analytical, it really kind of niggled at me as the thing that somebody who's desperate to preserve the status quo would say somebody who's scared to scared to understand or look at or examine why they do what they do and who they are and who they have relationships with and like it's the kind of phrase that's been used to tamp down women back into their back into their spot i think yes i entirely agree with you but that reading is the reading I have. You know, you. how did you say it? You, I found it much more horrifying. I think. Yes, I think that's exactly it. I just think that horrifying is good. It is what makes <laughs> yeah, the enough. character grow. It's what makes yeah. them speak their frailty, their faults. That, that, that moment of attack, that moment of defense reveals a vulnerability and a depth to Elsa that has been hidden both by Elsa and by the story to a certain extent up until that point. We've talked about it like in a, another episode that exists somewhere in time uh, about, you know, taking people at what they say, this idea of believing people when they say things. Yeah. And I think there's something else to the idea too of people's defenses, their survival mechanisms while they might be faults in a story and might make living with them uncomfortable, they are doorways into who those people are. And challenging someone enough to where they might defend themselves in a way they've never defended themselves before reveals that doorway for all the both people. Right, right, because she's introduced as... Um Perhaps this was why people continued to include Elsa Branksome as an element in their parties. She was not inspiring. She was never illuminating, but she was emollient. Um, um, and so, I mean, I love that as a character description, but I also love that as a sentence structure, right? She was not inspiring. She was never illuminating. Adjective, adjective. adjective. She was emollient. Noun. Adjective, adjective. Noun. And it kind of just like... Makes you takes you on a little a little half turn at the end of that sentence, which I found intensely pleasurable. I enjoyed how our understanding of Elsa grows across the story, and I also enjoyed how barbed the text is and the way Vita describes people and kind of judges them harshly, um, and how she captures Daphne's spirit when in this kind of like volatile, nervous lady. She brings up Einstein, and I can't stop to tell you about Einstein now. You'll find out all about him in good time. And it's just this kind of wonderful, energetic bounce to it. At this point, right, it's just become a trope. If you have a visitor from the future, they should be a bit flighty and talk fast and hint at impossible wonders and, and horrors to come. In this case, World War I. Um, because, yeah, Daphne, to a certain extent, reminded me, the doctor reminded me of any kind of agent of chaos in a story um, that, for better or worse, often gets depicted as someone that in other settings would be say, oh, they're just so hyperactive, they're so nervous, they're so anxious, they're so sensitive. Um, yeah, sometimes stories just allow people to to be happy in a way they don't allow themselves to be happy in real life. But um, thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to say 
all of the things about these stories. Nor have we probably talked about all the stories. Not, not that exist in the world, no. So, if you would like to hit us up on Twitter, you can give us your recommendations and tell us your thoughts. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And if you would like to like and follow us on Facebook, you can. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. That's storyological, spelled like it was five seconds ago. And if you would like to find us on iTunes and leave us a rating, we would absolutely love that because it helps other people find us too. Uh, and of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, appropriate and inappropriate gifts, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. You know, so many time travel movies, so many time travel stories, they rarely actually dig at family as much as you think they would. They rarely seem to actually dig at the sense of a family tree, a sense of linkage, something that, like, Kindred did, you know, by having somebody ripped back into their own past, their, the past of their blood. Um, and there, there's something delicious about it. It suddenly has far more stakes. It's far more interest.